gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero Superman Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, The Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, The New 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Eunice, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El came to Earth, whose environment gave him fantastic powers. In Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil the world over as Superman. And welcome to episode 73 of Superman in the Bronze Age, the best and, I believe, only Bronze Age Superman podcast on the internet. Today, you are invited to the Bronze Age nuptials of Superman and Lois Lane. Not a hoax, not a tease, and not an imaginary story. But first, we've got three items of business. Number one, this episode is sponsored by Discount Comic Book Service. They let you buy comics you want online at prices you can afford. Plus, they're always having some kind of special sale or deal, so make sure you check them out at dcbsservices.com. And if you tell them I sent you, they will not do anything special whatsoever. So don't even bother. Number two. Folks, the email inbox is empty. So please, send in your thoughts, critiques, or questions. I promise I'll read them on a future episode. I would love to hear from you guys. Now with those things out of the way, number three. I've got a special guest joining me this time out, and he's been quietly sitting over there in the corner waiting for his introduction. He is the host of the Superman Fan Podcast at the Superman Fo- yeah, at the Superman Fan Podcast.blogspot.com, and he's the artist on the webcomic Slipstream, which is written by fellow Superman podcaster Jeffrey Taylor and colored by little old me. Put your hands together for Billy Hogan. And Charlie, thanks for having me on, especially for this story. Yes. Well, you know, I'm having Billy on for three reasons. Uh, One, being that he asked. Uh, Two, because the story we're covering really harkens back to the era that Billy covers on the show. And three, he threatened to kill my cat. (laughs) So, (laughs) just kidding, he didn't really ask me. How how are oh you already asked it how are you doing how are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing fine. Uh, 
just uh, trying to catch up on season five of Slipstream and, uh, you know, working on keeping up with the podcast at the same time. So it keeps my days full. Cool. You know, when I'm not working, that is. Uh, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, we've had to uh, do a little bit of a jump on Slipstream because we got, after four seasons, or four, I guess you could call them issues, over at Clockwork Comics, did he he shut the whole site down? Yeah, I believe he did. Yeah. So we've had to uh, come up with our own site for to finish releasing Slipstream, which has caused a bit of a delay in releasing the next issue of Slipstream. But I work that's coming along, and I promise that when we get more information on that, I will make it available to all of you, my six or seven listeners. And, um, you know, I was... <laughs> Not thinking about it. You know what would be really funny if if someone listening to this actually started clapping when I told them to put your hands together? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that would be awesome, especially like if they're like either in the middle of the in a car or just like walking down the street and or just in say, a public place in general. <laughs> in a library. <laughs> trying to do and they got a podcast going and all of a sudden they start going, Yeah. Oh oh, sorry. That'd be awesome. But um Yeah. So we are going to talk about a 40th anniversary issue of Action Comics, number 484, right after we play these promos. I bet you can't guess which pro- whose promo I'm going to play first. <laughs> Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Do you enjoy time travel in general, and the Silver Age of comic books in particular? If so, join me each week on the Superman Fan Podcast. My name is Billy Hogan, and I will be your host. Together, we'll crash through the time barrier and fly into the past to explore the Silver Age adventures of Superman. One week, we will take a look at the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and soon... Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. The next week, we will feature the Man of Steel's titles, Superman and Action Comics, which will include the Supergirl stories during her run in the back of that title. You can join me each week on Wednesday or Thursday at the supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com, which is available on iTunes. And your emails are always welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to wear your red indestructible cape. Greetings, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about... I am Batman! Or... This is a job for Superman! Do you remember... Power Rangers! Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots! Transform! (laughs) Or this? By the power of Grayskull! Or... For the honor of Grayskull! Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's Geekcast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. 
Charlie's Geekcast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where, currently, I'm covering Grant Morrison's run on JLA, one storyline at a time. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. You'll be glad you did. Well, hopefully... We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. Okay, Action Comics number 484 with, had a cover date of June 1978 and an on-sale date of March 27th, 1978. It had a cover price of 35 cents, and as it says on the cover, it's the 40th anniversary issue, which means that this issue is 35 years old. And it came out uh, a couple of months before I graduated high school. <laughs> oh man! Well, if you want to feel if you want to feel good about this, <clears throat> it came out about two and a half years before I was born. <laughs> so that's awesome. Uh, was that? Were you in Flo- growing up in Florida? Yeah, oh, I've okay. been. Uh, my parents moved to Florida. About 1963, my dad was in the Air Force, and he was uh, transferred to McDill down in Tampa. Oh, cool. So are you on more on the East Coast or the West Coast? Or I'm kind of in the middle. In the middle. How far are you from Disney? Uh, it's about an hour. Oh, that's not bad. You can yeah, go, meet, you, um... go meet Scott. Yeah, uh, and darn it, I missed him at Megacon again. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was there on Saturday and uh, had another friend uh, send me a message and I tried to respond back. Well, by the time I noticed it, uh, I could not get through, so I'm thinking the Wi-Fi or whatever was just jammed. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, folks, you really need to go check out Billy Hogan's podcast. Not only does he cover the Silver Age of Superman, but before that... The, it, during his first, I don't know, 700 episodes before he started focusing directly on the Silver Age, he was covering just about any topic he wanted from just about all eras, right? Yeah, I would just pick a topic and uh, spend about a half an hour uh, just kind of giving a general information as to, you know, kind of introduce people uh, to, you know, Superman kind of going about it as you know it's since at the time the only other one that was about the comic book superman was uh, steve Eunice with the radio kal and the speeding bulletins uh video bot podcast and so just doing uh, uh episodes each week just to pick a topic and like for someone someone didn't know wasn't familiar with superman i you know, would just kind of give a kind of a general introduction on a different topic about the Man of Steel. Mm-hmm. And you do like Valentine's Day, you do some story with like Lois or Lori or Lana or something. Yeah, like a holidays when, where I could find a story that fit, I would do that. Or like April Fool's Day, like uh, the first year I did it was I had to feature the story the night of March 31st, which is... Oh, uh, yes. That's a classic. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so kind of 
one thing about the Silver Age, you know, they weren't afraid to do really way out things. Yeah, I really do think sometimes that they were on something. Yeah, it was a little, you know, <laughs> I, I enjoy modern comics, but there was a certain charm about uh, the comics back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, folks, I'm not insinuating that they actually were on something. It's a joke, but sometimes when you read them, you have to wonder. Yeah, I was. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> you do. <laughs> um, and then we all we screwed it up by every, all the other Superman shows coming on almost all at the same time and covering all different eras, so he decided to jump into the Silver Age. But, not only does he cover the Silver Age, but every year he does a, uh, probably a handful, I guess we could say, of episodes, all about the different panels at, Dra- at not Dragon, Dragon Con? Megacon. Yeah, Megacon. Megacon. Sorry, Dragon Con's Georgia, Megacon's near Orlando. So, you really should check those out, because it's almost like being there, except without actually seeing anything. It's in an audio sense, but it's really cool. Those are my, those are, I'm not going to say they're my favorite episodes, but I really enjoy those episodes because I don't get to go to cons too often here in Oklahoma. So, um, it's nice to pretend. But, oh, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) No, I was just going to say thanks. Um, and I enjoy doing them. And, uh, you know, so far as like Megacons, the only convention I've been able to attend is, uh, usually not able to, have the money to afford the travel to visit com- conventions out of out of the area. Yeah, man. Yeah, I I hear you. But we get to meet at the uh, Superman. So, are you still going to Superman yep. celebration? Yes. Yep. People, I tell you, they're dropping like flies. We've lost John Wilson. We've oh, lost I didn't Michael know that. Bailey. Yeah, oh. we lost. Now, didn't Mike... he have a? Didn't his wife was wasn't she involved in a car accident a little after um yes. Rachel Bailey? Yeah, Rachel Bailey. And by the way, our thoughts and prayers go to her cuz she she has the uh that soft bone um it's not a disease, condition. Yeah. So her bones break really easily and she was in a pretty bad car wreck that appears to have totaled the car and she's got arms, legs, ribs broken so our thoughts and prayers go out to her for for to heal quickly but yes because of that michael bailey's not going to the superman celebration john wilson got a new job (laughs) which prevents him from being able to go to the superman celebration oh that i didn't know yeah so which actually kind of technically kind of works because the two of them were actually going to carpool together yeah (laughs) so there's two down so and then I heard that it's possible for undisclosed reasons that Michael Bradley might not be going. Oh. So yeah, so for our um so I guess right now it's I'm going I'm car well, I'm not car yeah, I'm carpooling with Dave Weeder and then and Lee Busby, but he doesn't do a Superman show. And then you're going and I Jeffrey's still going as far as I know. So and then of course Steve Eunice is coming all the way from Australia. Yeah. So, we'll still have a healthy presenta- uh, presence there. It just won't be quite as healthy. I guess yeah, you could say. Yeah, this, uh, I guess the uh, Superman Podcast Network convention is going to be a little light this year. Yeah. Which is a shame because I don't know when all of us will be, have a chance to try to go again. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because this is, this is kind of a special thing for the 75th anniversary that I'm able to go. So. Yeah. And I think. Um... 
I'm not sure, but I think Adam DeShannel, who had hosted the uh, uh, Clockwork Comics website, and he uh, is also a uh, contributor to the Superman homepage, he was hoping to be able to go again. Oh, he's not going to be able to? No, I, I, I was. he was mentioning that he was hoping that he would be able to go. Because oh. I think he went back in 2008, the last time Steve Eunice and Michael Bailey were went. Oh, okay. So I guess maybe there's still a shot for him. Yeah. Well, hopefully that'll work out because that'd be cool. Yeah. Because he's coming from England? Yeah, he, I think he lives in around London. Yeah. Wow. International fans. Yeah. It's going to be... I'm really looking forward to it. I get we get to meet Michael Rosenbaum, and who was Lex on Smallville, and Tracy Scoggins. There you go. On, uh... Cat Grant from Lois and Clark for the first season, and then I think so far the only comic book person has been um, Chris Sprouse. Although um, I was on the site the other day because I check once in a while just to see if they've. Announce like what the special or the schedule event schedule is. That's not up yet. They, but uh, they're gonna have some other comic book people, including Brett Breeding. Oh, that's so cool! I like Brett yeah. Breeding. Oh, good, because that means I actually have some stuff I could get signed. <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of Superman Chris Sprouse stuff, but I do have a lot of Superman Brett Breeding stuff. Yeah, because he was. Um... Doing a lot of uh, Superman stuff during the From Crisis to Crisis era. Oh, yeah. Especially, like, from, I want to say, 87-ish. Yeah, about, about 80. He he started on the... I think he started working on Superman shortly after John Byrne left. And then he left for a little bit. And then he started, like, inking George Perez right after Exile. And basically continued inking Superman comics from the end of Exile all the way until right after the death. Or the the return, I'm sorry. And then he did a few issues after that, and then he disappeared again, and then came back when they relaunched that Man of Tomorrow book. Yeah, the quarterly one. Right. And then after a little bit of that, he left that too. And then he hasn't... He's guessed... He's done some guest inks occasionally, but he hasn't really been a member of the Super Team family since then. But he's been doing a lot of the licensing work. Oh, he's okay. been doing because um, I, I follow. I don't remember if it's a fan page or his or him on Facebook, but he does a lot of he does a lot of some of the a lot of the pencils too. But he does a lot of the inking over all those Jose Luis Garcia Lopez images you see. Yeah, he does a lot of the inking over those. So he does. He's doing a lot of the art for the licensing stuff. So that's pretty cool. But believe it or not, we're talking about a comic. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we did a tangent. That was cool. Okay, <clears throat> where were we? We talked about the cover, fortieth uh, anniversary issue, and it says on the cover, it has an in, inset image of the cover to Action Comics number one, and it said in the first issue of Action. Superman did this astounding feat, which of course references the fact that he lifted a car over his head and smashed it into a rock. And now, in this extra-length anniversary story, he performs his most sensational feat. Superman takes a wife. Written by Carrie Bates, penciled by Kurt Swan, inked by Joe Gaella, 
letterer was Ben Oda, the colorist is Tatjana Wood, and editor is Julie Schwartz. And our first page is amazingly awesome. Yes, it's Superman, strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who... Long ago decided there was one woman in the world he loved so deeply that he had to have her by his side. And so begins the series of astounding events revealed here for the first time, leading up to the momentous day when Superman takes a wife. Yay. By the way, I'm saying wife like a bride, not life, because that would be wrong. Uh, Earth 2. A world very much like our own, but slightly different. It is here that our story begins as the mechanical mo- <coughs> Excuse me. Not monsters. Mechanical marauders flood the skies after a successful bank heist. But have no fear, dear listener. For soon the Man of Steel arrives on the scene, and while the marauders gang up on the action ace, they are just no match for him. On the balcony of a nearby building, the aptly named Colonel Future and two of his men watch the debacle, with the colonel basically swearing that Superman will die. Twenty-one minutes later, on the thirtieth floor of the Daily Star building, Superman enters through a particular window, but exits the storeroom as Clark Kent. While he meets up with Jimmy in the hallway, Lois runs into the storeroom to see if the video camera she placed inside contains the evidence she needs to prove that Clark is in fact Superman. Unfortunately for her, something caused the film to get fogged up, Possibly X-rays or something. That now I'm sure that never happened in the Silver Age. Um, you know, uh, three days later, the renowned criminal known as the Wizard, and not the one from the radio show. This is a different guy. Is brought before Colonel Future, after proving his magical abilities by literally flipping the room upside down. The two men strike a deal. The Wizard will use his magic to remove Superman from the face of the Earth, and in exchange. Colonel Future will give him the Glastonbury Wand, which just sounds British. The magic wand rumored to have been crafted by Merlin himself. So the next day, while Lois and Clark take a casual stroll, stroll? Let me try again. Stroll? And Lois treats Clark like they were in a scene from the old radio show, Aquaman shows up with Aqualad to save an imperiled sub with Twinkies. Oh, sorry, hold on. <laughs> That's the ad. Let me get back to the story. Anyway, two of Colonel Future's men run around with powerful laser bazookas attached to their arms. In the confusion, Clark ducks into an alley, inadvertently stopping a guy from mugging him while he's changing to Superman and quickly takes off. While he makes quick work of the Colonel's men, the wizard conjures up a spell to bring Superman to him. Superman suddenly disappears from the city and appears in the Metropolis countryside with the wizard. And with another spell, the wizard banishes Superman from existence, and our hero literally disappears. Hours later, in the same spot where Superman disappeared, Clark Kent emerges from the ground and walks silently back to Metropolis. As the next few days pass, and while Superman is missing, Clark fights his own war on crime and tries to find out what happened to the missing hero. Over the course of the next year, Clark and Lois begin dating, and their romance blossoms to the point that they are soon married. But Clark has made enemies in his one-man war on crime, and during the Kent's honeymoon in the Bahamas, two of Colonel Future's men attack Clark. But not only does Kent not notice, but of course the would-be assassin's bullets have no effect. Thinking their equipment is defective, the assassins head off. 
But Lois saw the whole thing, and is shocked to see that Clark is unharmed and completely oblivious to his attempted murder. With their suspicion, with her old suspicions rekindled, late that evening, Lois takes the opportunity to try cutting Clark's hair while he sleeps. But the scissors break, defying all laws of all known laws of physics. Three days later, the Kents return to Metropolis, and Lois once again tries to find out what happened to Superman. Her investigation eventually leads her to the wizard, who is not so wizardly anymore. It turns out, after so many other criminals tried to take credit for Superman's disappearance, no one took his claim seriously, which, and this of course caused him to lose confidence, which nullified his magical abilities. So Lois decides to give him an opportunity to prove to the world that he is the one responsible. So the following Saturday, the Daily Star holds a press conference to reveal Superman's whereabouts, and the wizard is called upon to bring back Superman. As Clark wakes up from his slumber at home, because for some reason he's not at the Daily Star function, he suddenly disappears. And out in the Metropolis countryside, Superman flies up out of the ground and lands shortly thereafter at the press conference, quickly knocking out the wizard and promising to take the wand to the moon. Soon after, Superman returns to the Kent home to find Lois packing. She believes that Clark is no longer the man she married, and that they never would have gotten married if the wizard hadn't gotten involved. While this may be true, Superman tells her that this has given him the chance to realize just how much he loves her. So he proposes to her again. After all, she married Clark before, and now this time, she needs to marry Superman. So the couple fly to Superman's secret citadel in the mountains outside Metropolis. There, they follow Kryptonian marriage tradition by exchanging bracelets of a particular color and shade, specially chosen for the couple. And, the pre and in the presence of statues depicting Jor-El and Lara, the end while standing on the jewel of truth and honor which Superman had re reconstructed, they exchange vows, becoming Mr. and Mrs. Superman. The end. And after a couple more promos, we'll dive into our notes. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. December 7th. Earth 2. 1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All- Star Squadron.
The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. My name is Steve Lacey, and I'm a podcaster. Randomizer hit my long boxes, and now I'm lost in my comic book collection. Help me. Help me. Listen, please, is there anybody out there who can hear me? I'm being controlled by an overbearing and fickle randomizer. I'm doing everything I can to review this book in the next 20 minutes. This is the 20-minute long box. The 20-minute long box is the briefest and most random of comic book podcasts. Every two weeks, a completely random comic book from my collection is the subject of the show. Find me at the show's site, 20minutelongbox.libsyn.com, the show's blog at 20minutelongbox.wordpress.com, or search for 20 Minute Long Box on iTunes. Prepare yourself for random. We now return to Superman and the Bronze Age. All right. We're back to look at the notes. Are you ready, Billy? Yeah. <clears throat> awesome. Now, first up, let's look at the cover. What did you think about this cover? I thought it was a great cover. Uh, it was very clever to show Superman not just carrying Lois, but carrying the honeymoon car. And it's got the uh, you know tin cans and the shoes tied to the bumper. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom right corner, we see the Daily Star, which since this is Earth Two, that's you know the newspaper Clark and Lois both work for, and you just can't miss, uh, you know, Jose Garcia Lopez's art, um, especially with Dick Giordano inking it. Mm-hmm. This is a beautiful cover, and really, that Daily Star building you pointed out is the only clue you have that this is not. The regular Superman. Yeah. Because you can't tell by the way Lois looks. By the way, she looks beautiful in that dress. Yeah. For, you know, for line art. And Superman's S symbol is covered up by her legs. So there's nothing really, other than the Daily Star, there's nothing here on the cover that gives away that it's the Earth 2 Superman. And also, I do like the symmetry that on both Action Comics number one and on this issue, he's lifting a car. Yeah. The difference is now he's hold, he's only using one hand, and that car should really be tipping out of his hand the way he's holding it. Yeah. Unfortunately. But, like you said, it's a beautiful image, and it's probably one of my favorite covers ever. All right, well, let's get into the story. Um, I'll let you go first, since you're the guest. Okay. Um, on the uh, first page, uh, the title page, we see the Earth 2 Superman symbol, which in a way kind of reminds me a bit of the uh, Superman shield of the uh, Man of Steel movie that's going to be premiering in a little over a a month from now. Mm -hmm. Which I can't wait for. Yeah, and um, the uh, uh, bottom of the uh, Superman shield doesn't come to a point. It's like cut off kind of uh, flat and there's a uh, painting by artist's last name is Ward and he did a Superman painting and the S-Shield looked very similar to this and it, the painting itself 
hung in uh, Henry Harry Donenfeld's office for many years, but now it's um, hanging in the library of a college somewhere up north. But the thing is, no one knows how the painting got there. But it was the cover of one of the limited collector editions uh, that oversized ed- editions that DC published back in the mid seventies. Yes, yes, it was. And um, the story was uh, reprinted in two spots: the Superman in the seventies, and then uh, DC ret- retrospect retroactive Superman the seventies number one. And uh, the, of course, uh, the uh, see the Daily Star, which was the paper that back in Action Number One that Clark, Clark and Lois both worked for. On you know, page three, when we see the mechanical marauders, they really reminded me a lot of the uh, cartoon, uh, the Flesher's cartoon. Which was um, trying to think of the name. Mechanical um, Monsters. Yes, and th- that was uh, premiered on. Uh, I've got the uh, collection uh, in in my uh, uh, on my desk, and it was. I think it said it was uh, released on November twenty eighth of nineteen forty one, which happened to have been my late mother's third birthday. Oh, cool! Yeah. Uh, the only difference is in the cartoon, the robots didn't carry the loot. Uh, there was a panel on the back opened up, and they just stuffed the loot and Lois Lane right. in the uh, hollow chest cavity. That's right. I forgot about that. Good point. And uh, on page four, uh, Colonel Feature and his... Uh, Henchmen, their uniforms look like they came out of a 1940s movie serial. <laughs> yes, I thought the same thing. It's so it makes it perfect for this issue. Yeah, uh, and it's uh, why they picked red and green. I don't know. No, red, green, and yellow does not look very good. No, I don't think I'd want to see a cosplayer uh, <laughs> at a comic book convention wearing that. No. No. And on page five, we see when we see Superman flying to the uh, uh, Daily Star building, this looks like a typical skyscraper with, uh, you know, pane glass windows. And of course, we never see how exactly he gets in the building because he's not flying to the roof, he's flying like, you know, to the 30th floor. Um,. But uh, I don't know whether he would vibrate his molecules like the Flash or he can go through solid matter or if that's just something Flash can do and Superman can't. Uh, but anyway, uh, in this we see Lois uh, Lane for the first time and I noticed her hairstyle looks, you know, for, uh, well, for this story being published in 1978, her hairstyle certainly... Uh, is a throwback to the at least the Silver Age, if not older. But then this story kind of takes place, you know, in in their the past because Clark would eventually take uh, George Taylor's place as the editor of the Daily Star. 
and uh, and I think this may have been the first appearance of Colonel Future. I looked on Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics and uh, Comics.org, and uh, there's I, I think this is the first uh, uh, first time that they first appearance that is listed. Yeah, it might be the first and only appearance. I don't know if he comes back. I think there's a couple. Okay. And on page nine, that's uh, I like how Clark takes takes out the mugger, just as if he doesn't even know he's there. Just gives him a steel elbow to the chest, and that's all she wrote. <laughs> and on page ten, when we see the. Uh, uh, the Colonel, Colonel Features henchmen robbed the uh, armored car and using their bazookas as getaway rockets. Uh, I couldn't help but picture what that would be like in real life. It was like probably more than likely uh, the, their uh, jet-powered bazooka would probably uh, take their arm and leave the rest of them behind. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of rip it off. Yeah. Um, and the uh, and when Superman disappears on uh, page eleven, while he's holding them up in the air, it looks kind of they had a, a very painful fall to the ground. Although, does it look like it's not shown that they broke anything? No, but yeah, you're right. It looks like they're not going to want to be sitting down for a while. Yeah, and on page thirteen. You know, when uh, Clark, uh, editor George Taylor and Lois are trying to figure out what caused Superman to disappear or what happened to the Man of Tomorrow, we see Clark uh, kind of taking a more proactive uh, uh, role, uh, trying to stop – get rid of crime in Metropolis uh, when he – if you see him – uh, knocking out a guy in a gambling den, leading the police, leading the police raid, and he reminded me a lot of George Reeves' portrayal of Clark Kent in the 1950s TV show. And we even see a panel on that Ooh. on that same page, something we don't see a lot from Clark, where he's got his uh, tie pulled down and his top button of his uh, dress shirt unbuttoned. And bottom of page 13 and page 14, in just a couple of panels, we see Clark asks Lois out on, you know, to, for dinner and a show, you know, after working so hard on trying to uh, track down the uh, Colonel Feature gang and um, solving the mystery of Superman's disappearance. And like, uh, four panels we go from uh, showing hit them on a date to showing them get married, and it just seems like a natural progression because they just kind of highlight it, but it doesn't feel rushed. Mm-hmm. And uh, we see another difference between the Earth-2 Superman and the uh, Earth-1 Superman that we're more familiar with. When the matron of honor is Lois's sister, Mrs. Lucille Tompkins, and Lu- uh, Lois's niece Susie was a flower girl, 
Now she, I haven't read a lot of uh, Golden Age comics, but um, in look, listening to um, uh, Michael Bradley and um, John Wilson on their Golden Age Superman podcasts, uh, and on looking at the D- uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics website. That Susie goes back to the golden age. She was kind of like a mischievous character that would get under um, Superman's skin. Um, well, she, I don't think she had any magical abilities. She, she just was a very mischievous character, like Mixius Pitalik, except for the magical powers. But that was a, a little nice, nice little, uh, you know, Easter egg for. Uh, um, Golden Age fans, and on pages fifteen and sixteen, you know when Lois's suspicions that Clark really is Superman after all, you know he, he she sees him get shot in the back by this mysterious sub, and she confirms it by you know breaking her scissors when she tries to cut his hair, not when he goes out on the beach without his glasses and she doesn't notice that gee Clark <laughs> you look a lot like Superman with his hair combed over a little bit yeah <laughs> oh, I, I totally missed that part yeah <laughs> but hey this is uh, you know this is uh, the you know bronze age this is bronze age era comic book so uh, uh, kind of a trope that goes all the way back to the beginning Mm-hmm. Bronze Age uh, comic imitating a Silver Age comic. Yeah, just kind of carrying the tradition going all the way back to the very beginning. Um, and then it seems like uh, Clark doesn't, when they get back from their honeymoon, it's Lois that takes the uh, uh, lead on solving the disappearance of the mystery of Superman's disappearance instead of Clark. And then she's kind of shows her chops. Uh, narrowing it down to the uh, wizard and it's kind of a touching scene on page 18 when Lois realizes you know the you know the world needs Superman so she's willing to sacrifice her own happiness to return Superman to the world and um, then after on uh, page 20 after uh, the wizard spell brings Superman back. Uh, the man of tomorrow gives him the backhand of justice to knock him out, but it made me think, I didn't think of this until after I uh, read the story, is, you know, why wasn't Superman able to take him out earlier in the story when, uh, excuse, excuse me, he, um, the wizard made Superman disappear from, you know, where he was capturing the, uh, bank, the, uh, armored car robbers, but maybe he had him trapped in that flaming S shield on the ground. I don't know. It's not clear. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm almost thinking that that's exactly what it was between the mists that he had going and the, uh, him being in the S shield. I don't, I think he was kind of stuck in there. Yeah. Um, because you know, maybe, some Superman fans may not realize that Superman did have a weakness for magic. That's why Mixias Pitalik was such a nuisance to him. Mm-hmm. 
I'm also wondering, just the way I read it, it almost seemed like he was um, a bit cocky. And he didn't think anything could hurt him, so he was just... He actually ended up inadvertently giving the wizard the opportunity to get him because he was just so confident in his powers and abilities, he didn't think he had anything to worry about. Yeah, that's true also. And on the last page of the story... um... There was another really touching scene when Lois is packing up her clothes, figuring, you know, well, that's the end of her, you know, brief marriage. But uh, one of the it's one of the rare moments that you know, kind of Superman lets his guard down and he stops holding Lois at arm's length, and he realizes that uh, he always loved her, and then he carries her to his secret citadel where they get married, although seeing how big and uh, uh, the entrance is to a secret citadel out in the mountains outside of Metropolis, I don't know just how secret. <laughs> but I guess another one of those uh, Superman tropes from the era, kind of like no one recognizes Clark is really Superman because he's wearing glasses. Yeah, that Citadel door does have that giant red S on the front. So, <laughs> yeah, it's no giant key pointing at it, but it's still interesting. Yeah. And that's all of my notes. All right. Well, I've got a, a few notes myself. Um, starting on page one, as far as you were mentioning about Superman's costume, the other thing is if you notice... Um, most of the time, they don't always include the little detail, but most of the time, he's also got a little S on his belt buckle. Yeah, I, I meant that just till now. Okay. That is also on that painting you mentioned. So I'm thinking they really decided, okay, that's going to be the costume for you know the Earth 2 Superman. I don't know if he retains that little S symbol all the time or if this is the only time they show it, but this is very much from that painting. I'm also noticing that Kurt Swan is doing his very best Wayne Boring imitation. And he's doing a very good job of it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, also, I like the fact that they uh, used the opening to The Adventures of Superman, which is pretty cool considering all the references that they're trying to cram into this issue without actually making it seem like they're all crammed between the artistic stuff and the storytelling beats and the scenes looking, making it look like a, the George Taylor version of Clark not George Taylor Chris, uh, George Reeves version of, of Clark Kent it just is perfectly fitting that they would have the opening to Adventures of Superman here um, let's see I mentioned the whole costume page 2 uh, we get an interesting little gag on the first panel the story starts uh at the Galaxy Building in Metropolis with a giant oops written across the uh, screen and in the sky you've got a supersonic I think that's one of those Concords it looks like flying past the GBS building and then they have this whole explanation about Earth 1 and Earth 2 so then they do the panel again and this time it's um, you know the, the buildings are a lot more old fashioned we've got the Daily Star building which is shorter than the GBS building and the plane looks like one of those uh World War II cargo planes. So that's kind of cool. And then, of course, you get the look up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. 
but no, it's the Marauders. Uh, and page three, of course, like Billy said, the Marauders are basically the mon the mechanical monsters. Um, let's see, you already mentioned his co the costume for Colonel Future. Ah, page five. You can't honor the Silver Age of Superman without the Lois tries to prove that Clark and Superman are one and the same shtick. And it plays out really cool here. Um, and all the characters look very Silver Age, like obviously they're trying to go for it. It almost looks like Kurt Swank took out the old model sheets he used to use back then and just decided to go with those for the models. It de If you look at the page, it definitely looks like you've just you're reading a if you take the word the fact that it's the daily star building uh it definitely looks like you're reading a silver age comic yeah and i just noticed that uh, you see clark uh, sorry but let me jump in your notes there oh no you're good um uh, he's wearing a double-breasted suit ah <laughs> uh, the old school no school like the old school yeah but uh yeah it, Jimmy even goes, Jeepers! This is so straight out of the old show. It's so funny. Yeah. I love it. Um, let's see. And then, of course, let's see. Page 9. Jumping up there. Uh, like Billy pointed out, I like how he takes out the mugger without even trying. He doesn't even uh, <laughs> doesn't even acknowledge it. <laughs> it's almost like either he just planned to do it or he didn't even notice. I'm not sure. But um, the next to last panel where he's doing the shirt rip that def Clark definitely looks Wayne boring right there yeah he's got the big barrel chest he's got the he's wearing his hat uh, it looks very in fact some of the time sometimes it almost looks like this could have been one of those uh, late silver age issues too when um, after George Klein had left the book and they got a few of the other inkers parading through over Kurt Swan's pencils, but it wasn't quite time for the Bronze Age yet. That's somewhat what some of the pages of this remind me of. Um, page 11, uh, like I had mentioned before, it's um, I, this is very reminiscent of the Golden Age, where Superman had gotten confident enough in his powers that he was almost bragging that nothing could hurt him. And then, of course, magic could, but I don't. I almost don't know if he knows it at this point, but I would think he would, considering he's marrying Lois, and that would make this like the end of the golden age or whatever. Um, page fourteen. Um, my note for this page was the cameo by Susie Tompkins. Um, from and um, let's see. So page fifteen. Okay, now this one page. It's funny, I, I totally missed the whole thing about not realizing it's the Clark and Superman are the same guy without the glasses. But this kind of annoyed me a little bit. Now, I can understand him not feeling the bullets bouncing off of him. That I can get. But Clark, sh even with normal hearing, should have heard the gun being shot. And at the very least, the giant craft floating in the water behind him. Yeah. So it surprises me that he completely... I mean, even if he doesn't know he's Superman, it kind of baffles me that he wouldn't notice this giant machine and the fact that it's shooting at him. True. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, like you said, it would be one of those tropes. 
um, that would, you know, it's a Superman type sh type trope, and if Clark had noticed, it would have completely changed the scope of the story. And Lois wouldn't have been able, you know, wouldn't be as much on Lois's, Lois's sacrifice. It would have been on Lois and Clark, I guess, working together to try to figure out what's going on. So maybe that's why they did that, but I don't know. Page 16. Um... Now, I know there's a good reason for this, and it makes sense, and it's been done a thousand times, but this is another one of those tropey things. In order to break those scissors, those scissors would either have had to have been really brittle, or Lois would have had to be almost super strong. To, I, The way I would see it was, even with super tough hair, the scissors would still close, it just wouldn't be able to cut the hair. Yeah. In real life. Um... That might happen if she was trying to cut a brick <laughs> or one of his fingers, maybe. But on the hair, no. But that is a Superman shtick. That is something that they did a lot, they showed happen a lot in the Golden Age and the Silver Age. So you have to put it here. Yeah, and it does, is an effective visual. Mm hmm. And besides, it kind of lets her know that, oh my god, I'm marrying Superman. And let's see, and my last. Note was the final page, I think. Yeah, 22. Uh, the Jorel and Lara statue. It looks like there was almost some kind of photo reference, and this were taking this that these were also taken out of those old school sci-fi B movies from the 50s. Uh, they're not your typical depictions of Jorel and Lara, and I didn't think to go back until just now to see how they compared to the versions of the two characters from the old newspaper strips. But they definitely look like something out of um, one of those old B-movies or, not Buck Rogers, um, Flash Gordon or something. Yeah. Well, the uh, large collar on uh, Jor-El kind of reminds me a little bit of the, uh, uh, the Jor-El from the first episode of The Adventures of Superman. He kind of had a big collar on top of his... Shirt, which looked like it was out of Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon. Okay, yeah, that was. I didn't have a chance to look into that, but yeah, I was also wondering if maybe that's Jorel and Lara from the original, from that first show, since all these other Adventures of Superman references were in here. But that's my notes overall. I don't know about you, but I thought that this was a fun way to celebrate Superman's Silver and Golden Ages. Yeah, it was a fun story. It's really. Um... Even though it's definitely read like a silver or bronze age story, I still think, you know, with the, um, uh, you know, the silver and bronze age, you know, tropes in the story, it holds up pretty good, I think. Oh, yeah. And I love that this was when uh, DC was really starting to realized the scope of what they could do with the Earth 2 characters. I believe that by this point, or shortly hereafter, what they, I mean, they realized that they could do all kinds of stuff with the Earth 2 characters that they couldn't do with the Earth 1 characters, because the Earth 1 characters are the quote-unquote main ones, and they have to maintain a somewhat of a status quo. But with Earth 2, they could do stuff like, like for example, the Earth 2 Batman. By this point, he's married Catwoman, they've had a daughter, she's grown up, and become the Huntress. No, she hadn't been the Huntress yet. Then both Catwoman and Batman died. 
and their daughter became the Huntress. Now there's no way any, any of that could have happened on Earth 1, but they can do that on Earth 2. And here we have the fact that, that we're celebrating Superman's 40th anniversary by finally having Superman and Lois get married. But they did it in a way that doesn't affect the main continuity. And it's nice. Yeah, and it's uh, it's like the uh, all the imaginary stories where you know Lois and Superman got married, but in this case, it's not an imaginary story because it's now part of the Earth Two continuity. Exactly, and see, it's, it's it was a great way for people to have their cake and eat it too. People have been saying, "Let's they want to we want to see Lois and Clark get, or Lois and Superman get married." Well, this way you can, and if you don't like it, just read the Earth One stuff. Yeah, and then eventually, of course, they would have a daughter who would uh, become. Uh, I don't know if she was ever Supergirl or which did did she was she always Power Girl on Earth Two. Oh no, that's that's Superman's cousin. Oh, okay. okay. They ra- they um they took her in and kind of raised her like their daughter. Okay, I got you. I don't I don't think they made her go to an orphanage or anything. But yeah, they did. She she's also from Krypton, and I think for the most part, her origin story is very similar to what we know for Supergirl. Yeah, she showed up in a rocket, and I. But I believe that like, um, and they're cousins. But I believe that they took her in and raised her. Okay. Something to that effect. And he, of course, trained her and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I I just love it, and the the what really helped it was the artwork it had that retro look and feel to it that and like I told like I was telling Billy when I was going through my notes it definitely looked like it could have come straight out of a Superman comic from the 50s or 60s yeah especially since Kurt Swan was drawing it and he drew comics back then so that helped too yeah but uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about this one? Um, the other thing I was going to mention was um, I think the first time I ever uh, first time I ever read about the wizard, there was a 100-page um, super spectacular, which DC would do at the time. This was in the mid-70s, like 74, thereabouts. And I've uh, over the last couple of years, I've got I bought a... Um, uh, sometimes they would do reprints of some of their like over 80 page giants and they mm-hmm. reprinted this particular one and it was uh, uh, I first read about the wizard in the first classic the first meeting of the Justice League and Justice Society Ooh. and the, the the comic book that the reprint it was in had a classic Neil Adams cover on the front, Ooh. it was a wraparound cover. On the front were the Earth One heroes, with of course Superman, uh, then uh, Wonder Woman in the middle, then Batman two on the right side, and then on the back it had all of the Earth Two heroes. Ooh, that sounds cool. Yeah, and it, like uh, the Earth Two Robin had kind of a wasn't like uh, uh, a grown up you know red and green Robin costume it was more had a bat motif 
Like, oh, is that the one with the uh, like the gray shirt with a bat symbol, but yeah. instead of the middle section, it was the it was the Robin symbol on top of it or something. And kind of like the one of the first Nightwing costumes had that hot, that high collar. Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, the disco collar. Yeah, well, the Earth Two Robin on this particular cover had one as well, but it was had more of a bat wing shape to it. Okay. Oh, and he had the scalloped cape too, didn't he? Except it was like yellow. Or something I don't like that, know. Um, I don't remember exactly. Yeah, I haven't read a lot of the Earth Two or the um, Infinity Inc. Uh, uh, issues that Roy Thomas wrote about the Justice Society and their grown um, uh, sires who kind of became superheroes as well. Yes, those were. Some of that was good stuff. I haven't actually read a whole lot yet either. Just basically what they've done on the uh, Two True Freaks on their uh, uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America. And I'm way behind on um, listening to, to those. Oh, well, they haven't done one in like <laughs> yeah. a couple of years, I think. So you have time. You, you got plenty of time. Yeah, I'm still trying to catch up on all the other Superman podcasts. Oh jeez. <laughs> well that takes that that takes some effort. Yeah. Um but was that is that it for you? Yep, that's that's all I've got. Alright. Now on the back of the in the back of this issue, there's a special thing comparing the two Supermen. And um well here's what they say on it. For this special fortieth anniversary issue, instead of the usual letter column, we present a look at the two Supermen. The hero of this issue, who first appeared in Action Comics number 1, June 1938, and the Man of Steel seen in today's Action Comics. Of course, you know the modern Superman lives on Earth 1 and the older one on Earth 2. But aside from the obvious, obvious differences in their costumes, ages, and marital status, what distinctions set these two apart? Read on. So Billy and I are going to do a comparison here, reading down this list of the two Supermen. I will play the part of talking about the Earth-1 Superman, and Billy will handle Earth-2 Superman. So to start off, the Earth-1 Superman is Kal-El, son of Jor-El and Lara of Krypton. The Earth-2 Superman is Kal-El, son of Jor-El and Laura of Krypton, and the Earth-2 Superman's father, his name is spelled K-A-L-L, whereas the Earth-1 Superman has the E-L at the end of his name. Yeah, it's kind of... It, that's more of a visual difference to the name than audio, so... <laughs> that that one is a little difficult to do with the uh, reading it to you guys. Anyway. Earth-1 Superman was sent to Earth when he was about two years old. The Earth-2 Superman was sent to Earth when he was still a tiny babe in arms. Did I say Earth-2 or Earth-1 when I read mine? Uh... It sounded like... You, I thought you said Earth-1. All right, well, we'll just go with it. If not, I'll just take it from somewhere else and put it over it. The Earth-1 Superman was adopted by Jonathan and Martha Kent. The Earth-2 Superman was adopted by John and Mary Kent. Because he was used to conditions on Krypton, his superpowers were soon discovered by the Kents. Because he was so young when he reached Earth, he only discovered his powers gradually over the years... He had not discovered them all when he began his super career. He began his super career... Oh, I'm sorry. Earth-1 Superman began his super career as a youthful superboy. 
the Earth 2 Superman began his career as a grown Superman. In his secret identity of Clark Kent, he went to work for editor Perry White of the Daily Planet. The Earth 2 Superman, in his secret identity of Clark Kent, went to work for editor George Taylor of the Daily Star. The Earth 2 Superman now works as a news anchor for... Uh, I'm sorry. The Earth 1 Superman now works as a news anchorman for, st- for station WGBS-TV. The Earth 2 Superman now works as editor of the Daily Star. On Earth 1, there are a good many other survivors of Krypton. His cousin Kara, who is Supergirl, the inhabitants of the bottle city of Kandor, the Phantom Zone villains, and Crypto, the Superdog, among them. The Earth 2 Superman has only one other survivor of Krypton, his cousin Kara, who is Power Girl. On Earth 1, Lois has one sister, Lucy, who is unmarried. On Earth 2, Lois has one sister, Lucille, who is married and has a daughter, Susie. On Earth 1, Lex Luthor, Superman's archenemy, is totally bald. On Earth 2, Luthor, Superman's archenemy, has a shock of red hair. Uh, on Earth 1, Superman's foe from the fifth dimension land... I'm sorry, let me try that again. On Earth 1, Superman's foe from the fifth, fifth dimensional land of Zerf is Mr. Mixiez Pitalik. On Earth 2, Superman's foe from the fifth dimensional land of Zerf is Mr. Mixiez Pitalik. It is spelled M-X-Z-Y-Z-T... No, M-X-Y-Z-T-P-L-K. Yeah, like, what's that? Mixiez Tiplik? Something like that? Yeah, um, yeah Mixiez Tiplik. On Earth 1, Superman is a full member of the Justice League of America, being one of its founders. The Earth 2 Superman declined full membership in the Justice Society of America when it was formed, but became an honorary member. He became an active member when the group reformed in the 1960s. Uh, On Earth 1, from the first, Superman, then Superboy, was accepted as a champion of justice and ally of the police. On Earth 2... At first, Superman was sought by the police as a vigilante, taking the law into his own hands. On Earth-1, he knew from childhood that he came from Krypton. On Earth-2, he grew up not knowing his origin. Eventually, he discovered kryptonite and, tracing its origin, learned uh, his or- learned his own, it says. Yes. Uh on Earth-1, he has a secret fortress of solitude in the Arctic. On Earth-2, he has a secret mountain retreat near Metropolis. On Earth-1, he first met Luther in Smallville, where the two boys were friends before Luther turned to crime. On Earth-2, he first met Luthor in Europe, when both were grown men. Luthor was using his genius in an attempt to make himself a dictator. On Earth-1, he first met Batman in Smallville where young Bruce Wayne, not yet a Batman, was staying for a short time. On Earth 2, he first met Batman during the adventures against the Axis, which led to the formation of the Justice Society. On Earth 1, Jimmy Olsen is a youthful investigative reporter for the Daily Planet. On Earth 2, Jimmy Olsen is now city editor of The Star, serving under Clark. On Earth-1, Perry White is still active as editor of the planet. 
On Earth 2, George Taylor retired some time ago as editor of The Star. On Earth 1, well, I guess the Earth 1 universe, the people of Krypton had no superpowers on their homeworld. In the Earth 2 universe, the people of Krypton had super senses, including X-ray vision, on their home world. The Earth-1 Superman is still fully active and hailed as Earth's greatest hero. On Earth-2, Superman is semi-retired, though still available when needed, and hailed as Earth's greatest hero. And then it says, so when you come right down to it, the two Supermen aren't terribly different, aren't, are they? So that was fun. Yeah, it was. I like going over some of those things. It's amazing how much of that stuff did get retained from the Golden Age. And so, how much some of it is uh, messed up by the fact that technically Superboy started in the Golden Age. Yeah. But I guess technically they didn't really pull that into the Superman continuity until the Silver Age. So maybe that's... Yeah, I think uh, there was an origin story in the very early 1960s, which was the first one that incorporated details of Superboy uh, becoming a crime fighter. Right, yeah. Um, oh, I have that issue too, but I don't know where it is. Uh, but yes, so wh now that we've gone through that, um, next up we're going to look at a couple promos, or actually we're going to listen to a couple because you can't look at a promo. And then we're going to come back and look through the ads for the issue. Superman of the Bronze Age will be back after these messages. Since the day Bruce Banner was bathed in gamma rays, he has fought the creature within. The creature torments Banner. The creature is unstoppable. The creature is incredible. Now, the countdown has begun to Banner's greatest confrontation with the Hulk. And all of his internal battles have come down to one moment. One final chance to reclaim his life and be whole. And three words will change the Hulk and Banner forever. Honey, I'm home. Bigger. Smarter. Greener. The Hulk is taken to new heights as writer Peter David delivers an all-new phase for the Jade Giant. And Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast, is bringing it all to you. Join J. David Weeder, Lee Busby, and Michael Bailey as they turn a new corner and cover the all-new, all-different Incredible Hulk. Find the Ultimate Hulk podcast experience weekly at iTunes and at IncredibleHulkHomepage.com. Pad Smash, an Incredible Hulk podcast. Experience the epic like never before. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more supermanhomepage.com we now return to superman and the bronze age all right looking at the ads uh the inside front cover has one of those bodybuilding ads with a guy that needs to wear a bigger short <laughs> yes i was noticing that <laughs> there is uh let's just not focus on that we'll just move right along um oh. Let's see, next up, uh, between pages four and 
five, we've got two pages of ads. The first page is an ad for, or is it two parts? No, it's it's one ad for Wonder Bread. Wonder makes bread the way you like it, fresh and soft. One squeeze, one taste will convince mom that Wonder is the bread kids eat up. And, uh, yep. And you can also get free trading cards of Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie. Collect all 24. But that expired back in 78, so you can't now. I think Wonder Bridge um, shut down now. Oh, really? Yeah. I think they shut down around... They might even be the same... Yeah, I believe they have. I'm not completely certain. Oh, are, they, I think... are they owned by the same company that uh, had the hostess Twinkies? They might be. I think they are, yeah. So I, so I think they both shut down, which is, which is a shame. It was kind of a little more expensive than, than uh, like, store bread, but Wonder Bread was cool. Yeah, I remember... They still it, had the dots. Yeah, I remember as a little, little kid, I would always want my mom to buy Wonder Bread just because I liked all the... I thought they were balloons on the the wrapper. That was the only reason <laughs> I wanted her to buy it. <laughs> That's awesome. I remember when um, where I lived as a kid uh, up in Maryland, they actually had Wonder Bread stores. That was just Wonder Bread and Wonder Bread products. Was, was it? It was weird. Was it like regular store? Was it like a day old store where they would like bring in kind of almost out of date, you know, bread, you know. Products well, and stuff. I'll tell you, um, I don't know. We never actually went in there. Um, neither one of my parents were, well, my parents were mostly into being thrifty. No, yeah. Um, we, we ne- it's not like we were poor or anything, but we didn't really, you know, spend too extravagantly. So when it came to buying bread, it was always like the store, uh, whatever store brand there was. So we never actually got Wonder Bread, so we never actually went into that store. But I just remember seeing them. And it was just the Wonder Store or something like that. Um, let's see, the next page of ads is two half-page ads. The top half is how you can make money by selling grit, which we've seen a lot since we started this show. Yeah, and I remember my grandmother used to always uh, subscribe to grit for a long time. Really? Yep. Cool. Although she got it in the mail, uh, I don't think a kid delivered it. Oh, okay. Was it a uh, just a magazine? It was more like a little tabloid newspaper. Oh, that's kind of cool. Was it a uh, like daily or weekly or? It was, no, monthly? it was. I think a weekly. Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. I never knew what that was. Other than it saying America's greatest family newspaper since eighteen eighty two, I guess that should have been a clue. Um. And then the bottom half is an ad for Slim Jims saying to satisfy your meat tooth, but you know, and it shows that even Count Dracula likes Slim Jims. And if I'm not mistaken, that looks like a uh, Jack Davis drawn Dracula. I would not doubt you for a second. I have no idea though. <laughs> well, I think uh, I've looked at enough uh, issues of Mad Magazine. It really looks like his art style. It's definitely going for humor, so I'll, I will definitely agree with you on that. And it's really cool because the background looks like it's painted, like a animation thing. Yeah. And then the front part looks also kind of painted in the color, but it definitely looks cool. I like it. Um, let's see. Moving right along. 
is the hostess ad, but we're going to get to that in a minute. Next up, wow, way down after page 11. Uh, wow, free bikes, burgers, and candy. You could win all these thanks to sh the, the wow candies of Sugar Daddy, Sugar Mama, and Sugar Babies. Sugar Mama is not around anymore. I believe Sugar Babies and Sugar Daddies yeah. are. And we have some typically 70s looking kids that are animated uh, with their cool bikes. And there's also some t gift certificates to Burger King and a chance to win 25,000 Nabisco candy bars. That is a lot of cavities. Yep. Uh, oh, wait. They're giving away 25,000. I don't think you actually win that many because that would be absurd. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, let's see. Um, after page 12, we have another ad for Clark Bars. Uh, the, and you can also be a Major League Baseball coach in a dice baseball game. So I guess it's actually two ads. The top half is for Clark Bars. You got Clark Coconut, and it page turned on me, Clark Peanut Butter Log, which doesn't sound too pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> Clark Crunchy Peanut Butter, Clark Zagnut. Clark Mint and the regular Clark Bar. Now, as I, as we're recording this, John Wilson, who was on a couple episodes ago, and saw we saw this ad, and he was wondering what they were like. He uh, actually had a chance to try some. He's not a fan. Um, although he did point out how the Clark Crunchy Peanut Butter tasted a lot like the Peanut Butter Log Bars, and then realized that Peanut Butter Log Bars were also by Clark, so that makes sense. But yeah, he also tried them. And anyway, uh, but the other game is to be a major league baseball coach, and it's basically a dice game of some kind. You can use baseball cards and all that kind of stuff. In other words, it's a game that probably went out of style once they started making video games. Uh, let's see. Next up, you have a hodgepodge page. You can get all kinds of stuff. In fact, you could let them let some company pay you four thousand one hundred dollars for whatever Marvel Comics book that is. I can't tell, but it apparently, I think that looks like Marvel Comics number one with the yeah. human torch. Yeah, the, getting out of something. Yeah, he's burning a um, hole through the wall. Looks like. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. So you can sell your comics. And of course, it's got the classic X-ray specs for a dollar. Oh, of course. And of course, the banana stamp. Ooh. And I, I like this poem set to music. You know what that's called? It's called a song. That's all I have to say. <laughs> uh, the next page is uh, the top half is once again hodgepodge stuff. Y you can get anything from a switchblade clone. Cl Switchblade comb to a pocket spy scope um, and all kinds of stuff. And the bottom half is to, is another bodybuilding thing. Uh, let's see. Next ad page. Wow, it's another hodgepodge ad page. But this one you can float on air. Somehow. As long as you're less than 200 pounds. Um... And then the next ad page is after the entire story. It's another bodybuilding ad because we don't get enough of those in a comic book. 
and another guy that needs to wear bigger shorts. Uh, the next one is another little uh, gags stuff page. Yeah, with the X-ray specs, another X-ray specs ad, and of course yep. the classic whoopee cushion. <laughs> yes, and the magic soap powder. And the hot bubble gum. Mm -hmm. That's a good way to make friends. <laughs> yeah, the exploding fountain pen. Because there's nothing that says, I love you, <laughs> like an exploding fountain pen. And let's see, the, in, the, the back cover is a full-color comic ad page for the Super Siren by Empire. And this would be a siren you put on your bike so that no one runs you over. Basically is what that is. But you succeed in annoying the whole neighborhood. <laughs> in real life, yes, but in the comic... It's almost like a safety safety feature. Exactly. And the guy's even like, good boy, Bobby. Go on and pass. But he looks like he's already behind the uh, car to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> So he's got two choices. Either run the kid over or let him go right on by. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. At least he's in a good mood about it. Yeah. Boys and girls, your attention, please. You're about to listen to two podcasters with absolutely no acting talent or experience. I don't know if you've got talent. You might have acting talent. Uh, not uh, really. <laughs> try to do a Twinkies ad. Yes. This is Aquaman and the Imperialed Sub. And that's Imperiled Sub, not Imperial Sub, because that's weird. Today, playing the part of Aquaman is one Billy Hogan playing the part of narrator and Aqualad, because I only have to deal with one line. <laughs> I'll also be the bearded guys in the thing, I guess. <laughs> You've got, like, half the story anyway. Um, so Billy's going to be... <laughs> so Billy's Aquaman, and I'm everyone else. Okay, i got to stop hosting these podcasts if this is how it's going to work. Anyway, <clears throat> Aquaman and the Imperial Sub. Aquaman and Aqualad are out for a pleasant gallop on the waves when... Holy catfish, Aquaman! A tidal wave! Coming fast! We'll be thrown on the rocks! Dive, youngster, dive! Deep enough, we'll be okay! Look! A miniature research sub! They're not powerful enough to outrun that tidal wave. They'll be crushed, unless... And the Lord of the Seas calls upon his telepathic powers to bring a horde of friendly dolphins alongside. These dolphins will get the sub to shore fast. One last push, and the sub will be safe on land. Sometime later. Our rescue calls for a celebration. And I'm using an accent, apparently. Have some of our hostess Twinkie Cakes. One good turn, turn deserves another. Well, you'll like the mo moist, rich cake and delightful cream filling as much as we do. I'll ride a tidal wave for these delicious cakes anytime. You get a big delight in every bite of Hostess Twinkie Cakes. I wonder how Aquaman knows about Twinkies. Well, I guess it doesn't matter because the sub guys have them. So apparently the sub guys just bring Twinkies with them in a research sub. Yeah, maybe everyone he saves happens to have them packed with their lunch on board. Well, of course, it's the 70s. Everyone's got them. Even Archie had them and 
Spider-Man had them. Thor had them. Yeah, one thing about this ad, uh, I remember watching the Aquaman cartoons in the 60s. Mm -hmm. It made me want, always want a uh, uh, aquarium with seahorses in it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they had that... Did they ride it or did they did no, just no, follow them? No, they were them? giant seahorses and they they actually rode them underwater. That's right. And then they have like a. Didn't they also have like a, a seal or something that followed along with them too? That it's been so long I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember either. But yes, this very definitely could be a short little adventure from those filmation cartoons. That's awesome. And it's got Kurt Swan art. No, I didn't real even realize that. So you can tell see why I got confused with the whole thinking Aquaman was suddenly in the story. Although technically, I believe it's canon that the Earth Two Aquaman has yellow gloves. Now that I didn't know. I think it was a coloring error in the first few. Uh, not coloring error, but for for a while there, when the book when the story started, they colored his gloves yellow, which goes really well with orange. And so they decided to use that as the differential. I think that became canon like during All-Star Squadron, but I'm not sure. Do not quote me, please. (laughs) Although I'm sure everyone listening to this show will quote me, which is amazing. Okay, well, that finishes it for the interior of that comic. Next up, we are going to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. Or actually, it's just Mike's Amazing World of Comics because he covers everything. And we're going to take a look at all of the... DC Comics that had a um, that had a June 1978 cover date. Looking at this in alphabetical order, because oh, why not? They all came out in the same month. Um, We start with Action Comics 484. I think we've talked about that one. So moving along, we've got Aquaman number 62, which had Don Newton art inked by Bob McCloyd, which means that must have looked beautiful. And that's Bob McCloud, not Bob McCloy. But this, apparently this is right about the time that um, Aquaman's son died. Yeah, I've never read many of uh, the Aquaman comic books. I have not either, other than the uh, current New 52 stuff. Batman 300, which is an anniversary issue that does use an imaginary story this month. Uh, This is Batman's last case. Now, this is a Robin costume on there that is not the one you were talking about, right? Right. Yes, that is... That's actually basically the Earth 2 Robin costume that Dick Grayson's wearing. It's got a longer cape, although in here it almost looks like wings. And And they gave him pants. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, I I think uh, I kind of... I would prefer... If I saw someone dressed in a Robin costume, I would prefer this one instead of bare legs. Yes, for live action, yes. Yes. For cosplay, also yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, next up, we have Batman Family number 18, which has Robin in his traditional Batman, cost- Batman costume. Yes, because that's what it's called. In his traditional Robin costume, in an interesting cover by Al Milgram. And apparently, Batman, Robin, and Batgirl are up against demons with Man-Bat flying in the background. Plus, it has a Huntress story. So, yay. Uh, Let's see. Next up, we have Challengers of the Unknown 87, which features Deadman on the cover also. 
And this story was written by both Jerry and Carla Conway. Hmm. Not sure if they're still married, but um, it was also drawn by Keith Giffen before he became a Legion penciler. Oh. So there you go. Oh, let's see. We're only focusing on the actual superhero books. So next up is Firestorm, the Nuclear Man. In one of the final issues, because it only lasted about, what, four issues, I think, before the uh, unfortunate DC implosion. So uh, this is still during the DC explosion. It's Firestorm number three, where first time up against Killer Frost. So that's awesome. Uh, Flash number 262... Uh, looks like Flash is up against the Golden Glider. Um, while Iris West is with some... dude. In a costume. That looks really freaky. Pretty art on the color, cover, though. It's Rick Buckler and Dick Giordano. Moving right along. Next up, we have Green Lantern... Number 105, which is actually Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 105. Uh, looks like Green Lantern's going up against Sonar. So, yay. And it also features Green Arrow and Black Canary. Next, we have Justice League of America, number 155. Uh, which is a giant story. Let's see. And apparently the Justice League is trying to keep the Earth from splitting apart. There's a lot of disaster going on here. And the Leaguers are saving the day. You've got Green Lantern holding up a building with a green construct hand. Batman is swinging away with a guy that actually appears looks like a young Jim Gordon when he still had his red hair. Or if you're reading New 52, current Jim Gordon with his red hair. Wonder Woman's flinging some people around with her rope or her lasso, and Superman looks like he's pulling a bus out of the water. So there you go. Uh, I don't know why Superman's straining to do that, but whatever. Let's see. Next up, we have Mr. Miracle number 24 with a beautiful cover. I don't know if you can see that. By Marshall Rogers. Yeah. Wow. Marshall Rogers is nice art. And the it's got Mr. Miracle in the front in the foreground just looking all awesome and in the background you've got looks like Dark Side on the left half and High Father on the right half and it looks like this must have something to do with his origin it's a startling tale of cosmic fury as Mr. Miracle renounces his past to claim his future and if anyone knows uh Marshall Rogers art, it just looks beautiful. And Michael Golden does the art inside, so I'm guessing that's a pretty book. Then we've got New Gods number 18. Um, yep. Uh, looks like they're all f just, you know, fighting each other. I know, I know. That sounds completely different from any other New Gods story, <laughs> but just trust me on that. Secret Society of Supervillains number 15. Uh, looks like it's an Earth... Aha! It's an Earth 2 story. Looks like Doc Midnight and the Atom are up against 
I'm guessing that's Blockbuster. Uh, Floronic Man? Oh, it is Floronic Man. How about that? And I'm not completely sure who that other guy... The Wizard? Could that be the Wizard? I don't think that's the mm, Wizard. No, what, the, and I think the green hooded guy in the background? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Silver Ghost. Must be Silver Ghost. It's the only other possibility. In any event, the Wizard is in this issue. So, that's cool. It's kind of mean. I mean, he's got, like, all these bad guys and three good guys. And the funniest part is that if you look at this, the Silver Ghost, this is his final appearance until Crisis on Infinite Earths number 9. No, I didn't know that. And this is Copperhead's final appearance until Crisis on Infinite Earths number 5. Keep in mind that this is still seven years before that. So they don't—they're underused, I guess you could say. Shade the Changing Man number seven, just because I've never mentioned Shade the Changing Man before. This is a Steve Ditko book. He writes and draws it, and you can tell by looking on the cover. It looks far out. Yeah, I've always enjoyed Steve Ditko's art. Yes, it has. Well. For me, it has its moments. I prefer, I like his Spider-Man stuff. Yeah. His other stuff's kind of hit or miss for me. Yeah. Believe it or not, my, I think my first Steve Ditko art, if you can pardon a brief tangent, uh, was the very first Captain Adam story. I'm not talking about DC. I'm talking about Charlton. Oh, back. wow. Uh, that, now, that's a comic book I wish I still had. <laughs> I'll tell you how um, it was back in the mid-60s sometime, and when he became Captain Adam, I guess to protect everyone from his radioactive powers, he wore an asbestos costume. <laughs> yes, because back then asbestos wasn't known for its cancer-making abilities. Yeah, asbestos was a good thing back then. <laughs> for an example of this, check out any old Fantastic Four comics. Um, they had asbestos everything, from asbestos carpet to asbestos rope to asbestos glue. Yeah. But yes, I didn't know Steve Ditko did Captain M. That's cool. I'll have to I think so. It's that. been so long since I've seen that story, but it just mm. would seems to have... Uh, I want to say I want to say you are right. I just because I I want to say I think I maybe I did hear that I just forgot it, but I want to say you're right. Um, Showcase Comics number one oh one. Let me try that again. Showcase Comics number one oh one. Uh, this is after Showcase has returned, and this issue seems to feature just looking at the uh, cover. We have Hawkman, Hawkwoman, and. Adam Strange. Yeah, it can't be Gets... a Joe Kubert cover. Not with these particular characters. No. No. Him, those, and uh, the war ones. Yeah. Are awesome. Then there's Steal the Indestructible Man, number three, which I believe this is this series also only goes to five issues due to the DC implosion. But this was cool. It's a World War II hero, and they're still trying. To de- there's still some debate over whether this was Earth 1 or Earth 2 at this point because um, in some cases it reads like it's uh, Earth 1 hero in World War 2 and in some cases well 
he's in All Star Comics, or All Star Squadron, which is on Earth too. So you know, whichever. TV's Super Friends number twelve has the Super Friends going up against um, some green guy. Let me see if this says. Uh, Dr. Mist, perhaps. I don't know. It doesn't really say. But, in any event... Oh, it was penciled by Ramona Freyden. Yes, former and original Aquaman artist. But, yes, she, she came on and did a lot of the, at least the early Super Friends comics. And she was also, I believe, the original Metamorpho artist. Yes. Yes, you're right. Metamorpho. He's our hero. Uh, and this, of course, also has uh, Zan, uh, Jaina, and Gleek, because you can't have a Super Friends thing without the Wonder Twins. Uh, next up, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 240, which is not the issue that Dave Weider is going to be talking about in a minute, featuring the Legion all wrapped up in chains. It's kind of cool. Now I'm going to be like anxious to see... Uh, what Dave says about that. Superman number 324 features a Rick Buckler, Dick Giordano cover where Superman's up against Titano, who, as I recall, has not been seen for a long time in the Superman books by this point. I think I've only read about him in about three stories so far. And that's all... yeah, two Superman, one with Crypto. Cool. Yeah, see, and those are all Silver Age. I, I think this is his first appearance. Well, maybe the previous issue, but before that, I think this was his first appearance in the Bronze Age. Let's see. No, it says uh, last appearance, nope, Superman 323. Yep. Oh, he's made a couple of... No, and then before that, oh, Superman 226. 226. So that would have been right before... Yep. So that's definitely Silver Age. Well, very late Silver Age. Yeah, one well, right like at the very end of Mort end. Weisinger's career. Yep. And before that was a Jimmy Olsen issue that's very much in the Silver Age because it's from 65. So yeah, Titano has... Is, this is his first... Uh, this Well, the previous issue. This is his first story, let's put it that way, in the Bronze Age. And I don't know that he shows up many more times after that. Uh, moving right along, two more. Wonder Woman number 244, featuring another beautiful Rick Butler cover. He did a lot of art this month. Um, Wonder Woman is trying to save, or trying to prevent a missile, looks like, from hitting the U.S. Capitol. I hope she's, hope she succeeds in doing that, because I don't remember hearing about that. Is this still, this might still be when she's back in World War II, but it doesn't, it's hard to tell. And finally, for this month in alphabetical order, World's Comics, nope, World's Finest Comics, number 251, featuring a Gemma Paro cover, featuring Superman and Batman against the Deathless Brain, and also features stories starring Black Canary, Green Arrow, Creeper, and Wonder Woman. So there you go. By the way, Jim Aparo does a great Batman. I'm not a huge fan of his Superman, but here it's okay. Yeah, I, I like uh, this era of um, Jim Aparo's art. I think when he his work um, at the Death of the Family era, 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it was still good, but it, it, I guess he was getting near the end of his career, and you kind of you can kind of tell a difference. It, I like his earlier stuff the best. Yes, um, I completely agree with you. His cover work, his Brave and the Bold stuff, uh, and his pre—I I almost want to say, basically, his pre-crisis work. Yeah, was really cool. By the time you hit post-crisis, it still looked really nice, but he was getting to a point where, you know, you could almost you were having trouble difference telling the difference between a young person and an older person, or sometimes a guy and a girl. Um, although uh, late '80s, very early '90s, the fact that he had Mike DiCarlo inking him did help. But then you started you hit right around nightfall when he was inking himself and that just doesn't look good anymore yeah maybe that's why yeah he was getting old too by that point he'd been drawing since drawing comics since the 60s I think I want to say he was with someone I I remember finding it on Facebook I think he drew like uh, comics based on the the monkeys I didn't know that yeah he he drew them based on the monkeys, and uh, it was more in that. Um, it's not like his the style he uses on the bat on Batman or when he was doing Aquaman and stuff. It was more in his uh, in the. It was almost that Mad Magazine type of style, kind of cart- very cartoony, kind of looking thing. So, yeah, definitely different. But that's going to do it for the comic this month. Next up, our friend J. David Weeder presents another adventure of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes in the Bronze Age. The Adventures of Superboy. Exciting stories of Superman when he was a boy, who even as an infant demonstrated powers and abilities far beyond the capabilities of Earthlings. Superboy, who as Clark Kent, mild-mannered foster son of Martha and Jonathan Kent, preserves the secret of his true identity and devotes his superpowers to the prevention of crime, the preservation of peace, and the pursuit of truth. Welcome to another installment of Superboy in the Bronze Age, exploring the Teen of Seals adventures alongside the Legion of Superheroes. I am J. David Weider. This time around, we have a story from another 100-page spectacular, which would have cost you a whopping 60 cents. The tale comes from Superboy starring the Legion of Superheroes 205, the December 1974 issue. This time, we're looking at a three-part tale, starting with the first part, The Legion of Super Executioners, written by Carrie Bates, with art by Mike Grell. Our story opens with this title page, which shows Lana Lang and Ultra Boy tied to a post, with Legionnaires pointing guns at them, and Monel is giving the order to carry out their death sentence immediately. It actually opens up with Lana Lang's birthday, where her friends are all gathered to help her celebrate including Clark Kent and Pete Ross. But secretly, Lana is a spoiled princess and doesn't care about any of that. She just wishes Superboy was there. But later that night, after the party, Superboy flies into her room, Edward Cullen style, and says that he has a present for his favorite girlfriend. Wait, favorite girlfriend? How many girls is Superboy courting? And are we going to see a wacky comedy scenario where Superboy carries on several dates simultaneously? One is Clark, one is Superboy, one is uh, wacky foreign exchange student Humar? And is Lana suffering from OCD, is what I want to know. I mean, like, extreme OCD. Her room couldn't be more perfectly kept. And I just hope Lana isn't waking up in the middle of the night to scrub baseboards or something. You know how that goes. 
However, back to Superboy popping into her room with his present. Just to stop you before you even start, this isn't going the way of slash fiction. Don't get your hopes up, heathens. Although it does leave plenty of ways that that could be done. Uh, Instead of showing Lana a night she'll never forget, Superboy flies her to the 30th century, with her parents' permission. Can I just say, if it were my daughter, a boy would be lucky to take her on a date. To, like, Sonic. Much less the future. But... I have trust issues, and apparently so does Superboy, because he literally wraps Lana up in his cape like a mummy. We're talking head to toe. What is it Superboy doesn't want her to see? I mean, they're flying through a time tunnel, which is psychedelic and nicely labeled by year. Ah, there it is. Now I see why he wrapped her up. Because her rampant labeling and organizing of everything. Okay, poor OCD Lana. Aw. Speaking of OCD, there is an editor's note that reminds us that Lana has reservist status with the Legion, thanks to her ring, which allows her to change into the Insect Queen. But when the Teen of Steel and Lana arrive, the Legionnaires are looking gloomy. All Legion activity has been suspended as they deal with a crisis that has left the headquarters badly damaged. And the culprit who damaged the place? The Legion's own Ultra Boy. Ultra Boy is currently restrained in a triple security cell, struggling like a madman against his bindings. Nobody seems to know what made Ultra Boy snap, only that he is off the charts crazy. Superboy asks to speak to Ultra Boy, thinking that he may be able to get through to them if they have a one-on-one heart-to-heart. Monel warns Superboy that it's dangerous. Ultra Boy is as powerful as Superboy and Monel, even though he can only use one power at a time, and with the crazies, Ultra Boy is stronger than normal. Superboy insists, and the Legionnaires assume that since Ultra Boy is shackled, He poses no real threat. Nice assumption, but as soon as Superboy is in the room and the door is shut, Ultra Boy lets out this Howard Dean-style yell and pounces on Superboy and just starts beating him like it's a Samsonite commercial. I mean, it's not even a fight, it's just a beatdown and Superboy blacks out. I actually felt bad for Superboy who doesn't even land a punch. And Superboy awakens in Chapter 2, The Legionnaire Firing Squad. Don't get worried, Superboy's okay, but his cape is tied into some knot that the other Legion members can't untie. Superboy can because it is a special knot that Ultra Boy taught him. Brainiac 5 says that Ultra Boy's craziness is a virus, and the only cure is more cowbell. No, kidding, kidding. The only cure is waters from a planet that is light years away. So Superboy volunteers to fly to the planet, but as soon as he is gone, the Legionnaires grab Lana and it is revealed that Ultra Boy is the only sane Legion member. And can I just say that Grill's Ultra Boy just looks awesome. Yeah, I miss Dave Cockrum, but Grill is just rocking it, and we're seeing a less refined Grill than we're going to see later, which excites me because we're actually going to watch him as he tweaks his style. This is the beginning of a legendary period for the Legion folks, and they really become a fan favorite here, and eventually they literally encapsulate the Superboy title. But now, for the exposition. For days, the Legion has been pumping Ultra Boy with an insanity drug, trying to throw Superboy off the real plan. But now, they're going to put Ultra Boy and Lana to death by firing squad. Whoa, this got dark pretty fast. So Ultra Boy and Lana are tied to a post and shot with laser weapons, and so ends Chapter 2. Wait, you have Wildfire, a character who can incinerate things on a whim on your team, and you're using blaster pistols? And right after Karate Kid was able to take down a Raging Mad and Raging Strong, Ultra Boy, couldn't you have, like, Karate Kid just hit a death nerve and make them drop dead like a sack of potatoes? Or maybe I'm overthinking ways to kill Legion members and I should seek therapy. So after shooting the pair, we pick up with Chapter 3, The Army of Super Slaves. 
which is sounding more and more like slash fiction. In fact, with Lana laying there on the ground, she just looks like slash fiction bait in her fitted sweater and short plaid skirt. I'm not saying it should be written, but if I were to take the time to search the internet, I know the scene that plays out differently on somebody else's keyboard. And the Legion goes back into HQ, and we learn that Lana and Ultra Boy aren't dead. But how? Turns out, it was Superboy. He blocked the shots, doubling back instead of going into deep space. The clue? The knot in his cape, known as a hoax knot. When he saw that, he knew something was up. So, Superboy and Ultra Boy are communicating with knots? This is a bromance, folks. Maybe, just maybe, a bad bromance? Or just more slash fiction bait. But the Legion is still under control of a mysterious master. Who can it be? Lana suits up as the Insect Queen and... Wait, where was Lana hiding her costume and ring? She was flown into the future, wrapped up like King Tut, wearing nothing but her penthouse forum fantasy outfit. But here we see her in full Insect Queen regalia. And the trio sneak into HQ and discover that the Legionnaires are building some kind of space arc. Okay, story logic again. The Legion has a small fleet of transports. Why are we building space arcs? And unfortunately, Lana comes under the power of the Master, a yellow alien with a headpiece. The guy looks like a full-size yellow version of the Great Gazoo from Flintstones. Ultra Boy tries to attack, but Lana's insect powers are turned against him, and Ultra Boy is caught up in a web and then stung with a poisonous wasp stinger, which is harder to say than you think. I'm... Not going to mention that this is the most prime example of slash fix setup yet. Because Ultra Boy's in a web, Lana's an obedient slave, and then the sting of, of a stinger? Perhaps it's a stinger of love. Anyway, Superboy flies onto the scene, the last Legion member standing, and Gazoo explains that he is commanding the Legion, so he can take all of them to another planet so they can reproduce superpowered kids. And then generations later, Gazoo will have an army of superpowered Legionnaires at his command, allowing him to take over the galaxy. But before that can happen, Ultra Boy yanks the helmet right off his head, ending the threat. Turns out Lana was able to change to a non-poisonous wasp, allowing Ultra Boy to get the drop on the Master. And the Legion members all have their minds restored, the day is saved, and that's really it. The story just stops. Dead in its tracks. We didn't even have the Great Gazoo throwing the might of the Legion at Superboy, and, and beyond blocking the laser beams, Superboy had very little to do. And did anyone else forget that this was Lana's birthday? Did Superboy need an excuse for an excursion to the future? I will say this, Grell draws a very mature, good-looking Lana Lang. I was as surprised that beyond the birthday party, Lana didn't act like a spoiled princess through the bulk of the story. That's kind of Lana's thing, you know. Superboy isn't paying attention to her, so she tries to prove he's Clark Kent or something like that. And Grell's Superboy looks like a version that's a bit older. He's still a teenager, but he's growing slightly older. He's on his way to Superman, kind of an intermediate stage. And I like this evolution of Superboy and his Legion members. They look like young adults, maturing alongside the tone of their stories. But despite the lack of any real fight with the glo this goony villain, I was on board with the story, but I could have used more wildfire. He was just there, looking in the background. Sorry, but I've got a fever, and the only prescription is more wildfire. Oh well, maybe next time. Until then, I have some fan fiction to write. Long live the Legion. Alright, so thank you, Dave. And that's pretty much going to wrap things up for us here. Billy, I want to thank you again for joining me. Um, why don't you tell the good people where else they can find you? 
Well, uh, my uh, podcast website is the Superman Fan Podcast Blogspot dot com, and he can uh, email me at uh, Superman Fan Podcast at Gmail dot com. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I have a Facebook page and uh, group, and or you could just uh, friend me on Facebook, um, Billy Hogan in Eustis, Florida. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at Superman Podcast. It is, it's really cool, too. If you subscribe to Billy Hogan on Facebook and you like his group or get in his group, do you do a fan page, too? Yeah. Okay. If you do all those, there is no possible way you can miss an episode of Superman Fan Podcast. There probably also isn't a way you can miss Superman in the Bronze Age if you friend me and then like the group and the Facebook page but let me tell you and this is not a criticism this is I think this is cool when Billy posts a new episode it takes up about half my news feed (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, since it's all the same link it just says Billy Hogan shared this and also it was shared by the Superman fan podcast and the Superman fo- fan podcast group and it's 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 actually pretty cool but yes it <laughs> it's you cannot miss it <laughs> I love it <laughs> I think what what happens is uh, one of them is tied to Twitter so they psych it doubles uh, up that way and mm-hmm. um, when I was when the previous uh, podcast hosting site was uh, when they were closing down I was wondering how where I was going to put it, so I created a, a WordPress thing at the same time as setting up um, the setting it up on a Blogspot because I wasn't sure of how I was going to get it to work to link to iTunes, and so oh. that one will also link to my Facebook page. That's why there's so many. Uh, it's just, it's not a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great way to get it out there. <laughs> Let me tell you. I've I don't miss an episode. <laughs> I have a backlog, but I haven't missed any. And on behalf of Billy, Dave, and myself, we want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you guys next time. You have been listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer and J. David Weeder. The home of the show is at www.supermanandthebronzeage.com, where you will find show postings, links to the RSS and iTunes feeds, and more. You can also find the show on Facebook, where you'll get a little notice whenever a new episode is posted, and on Stitcher Smart Radio. Superman in the Bronze Age is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. There you will not only find postings for this show, but also for many other Superman-related podcasts. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you for listening, and God bless. show on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Blackberry, or Palm phones, on demand, and on the go. Don't have Stitcher? Download it for free today at Stitcher.com or in the app stores. 
Stitcher Smart Radio, the smarter way to listen to radio. 